Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Yeah, Isaiah 29, verses 13 through 16. You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? Or what that which is made say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed say to him who formed it? He has no understanding. That is the case with Israel. That is the case with us. That is the case of male and female. Why did he make me a man? Why did he make me a woman? You know, why am I a man and I think I'm something else? And why am I a woman and I think I'm something else? So it all goes back to maker and the thing that is made. Do you want to move forward with the particular role that you have? And that's in Israel, uh, that's the passage that we looked at when Jeremiah 1 and 2 is really key because when we look into the cities of refuge that we we read about in this particular section, you're like, well, that is just completely unworkable because this idea that you have uh, the manslaughter and then you're just going to have someone that runs away to a city of refuge and then they're going to be um, holed up there. Um, you could think of it in some sort of a rough crude analogy to today the city of refuge is like our jails where you hold people while they're awaiting trial and you hold them there so that you figure out what is going to eventually happen to them are they going to go into probation are they going to go to prison and what is going to happen to them afterward now with the cities of refuge it's slightly different in that regard that key aspect of the cities of refuge was to take the foot off the accelerator of the the avenger of blood because the avenger of blood was taking the role of the justice system now we would say in a world well today you don't have the family or people that are um, related to the victim go out to go meet out justice we, we, we say we don't do that. Why? Because we want to what? Have a dispassionate, completely objective, we would say, view of what guilt or innocence is. Well, that's what the cities of refuge for, was to have that sense of objectivity to take that realm out to say, okay, you're going to hold the court now and the avenger cannot get to you. But... That's where the passage in Jeremiah also comes from. That is, remember when that prophets, when Yahu was, was prophesying that, that was right before the exiles, the first exile of <laughs> the, you would be having the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. So in that particular time period, the state of the nation had, and the people had gone down, 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 down. So when you have a state of the people that has gone down, 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 your ability to 
do things that are righteous, to act righteously when you do justice, when you are an avenger of blood? Are you really out and doing things in accordance with, okay, there is, there is death that has happened here, and the death must be accounted for, or are you acting just out of pure vigilantism, which is completely then outside of the realm of where God's instructions go? So when a society really goes downhill, then you have to do what? You have to add laws on top of laws on top of laws on top of laws. Why? One of the, the founders of our country in particular says, you know, if our particular form of government, the Constitution, is made for a self-governing people, and it's wholly inadequate for any other. So thus, when you have the, as the Apostle Yaakov puts, talking about the Torah, the law of liberty, the law of showing you how to live in life freedom, with freedom, and to walk um, walk with freedom because you have the definition that God has made of, okay, this is the ways of life and these are the ways of death and if you want to go down the ways of life, this is a particular good way to go. And you want to head down the other way, well, it may work for a time, but uh, there is the coming cliff at the end of it. So that is what we all face do we want to be self-governed? And when we look at our passage in the Torah, that's at the starting point where you're starting with the people that are heading toward being self-governed. But down at the time of Jeremiah, that's long past being self-governed. And so thus, the heart of the people is completely bankrupt completely bankrupt. So then, when you have laws that are meant to work when people are self-controlled, those laws don't work and they can be oppressive when you have people that are not self-controlled anymore. It's one of the, the challenges of freedom is that freedom works if you keep yourself in check, but freedom can be disastrous if you don't keep yourself in check, not only for yourself, but for other people around you. Uh, Pamela, uh, do you still have your hand up, or is it ha your hand up from before? I'm sorry. Oh, okay, great. They took your hand down. All right. Now, one of the, the key things from this that uh, we have is... A thing that the Apostle Paul gets at in relation to this. Now, the Apostle Paul is quoting from some later passages in Isaiah chapter 64 and 65 when he gets into Romans chapter 9 through 11. Now, Romans chapter 9 through 11 is talking about what? That's an expectation. His heart is just pouring out because he's wondering how is it that my brothers and sisters in you know, the, the people of Israel are not seeing that their Mashiach has come to them. How is it? How is it that this has happened? 
And like with that passage we saw back there in Isaiah 29 and going on through these other passages in Isaiah, it was seen that, well, it happens because there is a veil that comes down over the eyes. Now, again, that goes back to the potter and the clay thing again. The potter and the clay, if we are the clay in the hands of the Creator and there is something greater that's being made from us, do we then rebel because the Lord is fashioning us into a handle for the pot or some other part of the grander part of it? Well, I don't want to be a handle. Well, there is a, a vase that's being made or a pitcher that's being made and it needs a handle and you're being fashioned into a handle. So, are we okay with going forward with the role that is being given to us? And that is what is then fretted about with this challenge that Israel is not getting on to who their Mashiach is. But one of the key things that the Apostle Paul talks about in this passage, when he says, well, this has happened for a time, because what? For the whole fullness of the nations to come in, and then all Israel will be saved together. Which gets us back to this apportionment of the tribes. Have you ever wondered why it is that there's this big deal that there are 12 tribes. I mean, there's this big deal that there has to be these 12 tribes, and the fact that their, their borders are um, specified, that these tribes must stay together. We, at the, the book of Numbers ends in chapter 36 with being very specific that these daughters then have to marry within their particular tribe because you want to keep the tribe together. But have you ever thought that it's very strange that you have this emphasis on the, the 12, or you could say the 12 plus 1, because you've got the, the family of Levi that's sprinkled among all of them, but they all are together as one, one tribe, or one, you could say one nation. So we get this principle that came down to us with the founders of this particular country where they have that emblem, you know, out of many, one. With the idea that, yes, you have individual parts and they are important to be individual parts, but they're also extremely important as a whole together. So it may sound strange to us when we read that section from the Apostle Paul. Why is it so important that you had then have these nations come in and then all Israel will finally get the message? The rest of Israel, the native-born Israel gets the message. And then all Israel together coming, coming through and being saved. It's because that each of us, as an individual, are hugely important 
But the whole is also hugely important. And we in this particular country have been have an ethos of individualism, and it can be hard for us to really get with this picture of the working together. Now, you can see that Israel really blends two things that can be <laughs> very dangerous. Hyper-individualism, where you don't work with other people and you see yourself as an island, and collectivism, or what? You trample on people's individuality. You break down their borders of who they are as a person for the sake of the collective. Everybody is just a, just a, a cog and a machine. It just runs in one direction for the whole. And who cares about the individual of any parts of it? But what you see with the tribes, the 12 and then being one, that there is the importance of the individuals and then there is the importance of the whole that goes together to be one. So when we get down to the topic of these back into chapter 32, interesting aspect of this, um, the Reuben and Reuben and Gad they want to settle on the east bank. So just kind of looking at the, you know, just zooming out here a bit from the map of where, where they had gone in. And, you know, so they had started out somewhere here in Israel and then gone down there into the Sinai. And depending on your view of where they crossed, they may have crossed over here and down into the area of Midian and back up and around and, wandered around out here in the desert and then as we saw in the past um the past couple parashas where they went and they tried to make you know they were trying to make the the direct route up because you see some of the ancient highways that go straight up from the gulf of Aqaba uh today from the eastern side of the sinai peninsula and they go straight up to the dead sea today it's called in the passage today the salt sea that was the direct route and they asked these neighbors they asked Edom they asked Moab these are relatives going back to the days of Avraham um you know Moab comes from <laughs> uh, it's kind of a sad legacy what their name actually means it means from father and uh where does that come from Lot Lot's daughters and those descendants and Edom. So the the red people from the the red man who liked the red red stuff. They asked for passage. They wouldn't give them passage, so they ended up going around them. And then you had some of the nations there in the area decided, ah, it wasn't good enough that they were going around them. Then what did they do? Came out to attack them. Well. That didn't go well, and they ended up losing, especially at the north end, they ended up losing their territory. So then when you see as the apportionment that what the um, two tribes of Ruben and God were asking for, so here in this map of modern-day Jordan, so you got the Jordan River, and everybody talks about the West Bank area of the Jordan where you have the 
conflict of the territories, modern-day Israel and uh, the folk that live in the West Bank area. Well, you go to the East Bank, which is modern-day Jordan, and you go to the area of, uh, of Jericho, which still exists here today, and you get roughly somewhere around there is going to be the border between what ends up being to the north is uh, Gad's territory and going south is Rabain's territory. And those are the two kingdoms that didn't... <laughs> uh, you had them really contest and um, they came out against them and they fell. So they took those two over. So they said, give us those particular territories. And so then there is this contention. Well, what was Moshe's fear in the text? What we see here. What was his fear when they asked, hey, give us this land on the east bank of the Yarden. Give us this land. What was Moshe's fear? They would become another country. It, but one of the things he specifically feared, he mentioned that uh, there it's uh, Kadesh Barnea. So if you look down here on the map at the bottom, this Kadesh Barnea. So it's kind of modern-day Israel uh, and the Negev down at the southern end. So it's kind of like right there near the border of modern-day um, Egypt's Sinai Peninsula area and modern-day Israel's uh, border is the area of where Kadesh Barnea is thought to be. Well, what happened? We read that back in um, Numbers chapter 11 with the, remember the spies, the 12 spies, one of the representatives from each of the tribes sent to go look into the land and they went into the land and then they came back with the report and 10 of the spies said, ah, nope, can't do it. People are too, too big, walls too high. Um, we're, we're just not capable of doing it ourselves. And then you had the two spies who were faithful said what? Lord with us, we can do it. The Lord has said, he's going to fight for us, so we can do it. That was Moshe's fear. Is like, oh, here we go again. We're now, the first generation has died off. We're getting ready for the second generation to go in. And this generation is going to do the same thing. We have two of the tribes now that have said uh, they seem to be um, really waffling on whether they want to go forward and go into the land. So there was the worry from Moshe, hey, this is going to be the same thing happening all over again. But what was it that happened next from the two tribes. They made a vow. So what you basically say is this East Bank bargain that came in there. Now, there have been a number of commentators that have observed that there's a very interesting wording that shows up here in the Hebrew of this, and that's the verb nagash. Nagash is um, to approach, come near, depending on your translation, so it talked about that Gad and Rubain nagashed to Moshe. They approached, they stepped forward, and they gave this proposal, which is basically, you know, we're going to 
We're going to be right there at the vanguard of the forces going in. We're not going to sit by and just let everybody else kind of just do whatever across the river. We're going to go in. And so, thus you've got this commitment that they are going to be a part of the whole. Even though they are off on the East Bank, they are committing to be a part of the whole. And Moshe is saying, okay, yes, you're going to be a part of the whole, and then we're also going to split <laughs> a part of, you know, Manasseh, that tribe is, Manasseh is going to be over on the East Bank as well. So split that tribe part on the West Bank, part on the East Bank of the river. And so that they would be a part of this force going in. Now, the interesting thing is, is when you see there is a number of examples throughout Scripture and people have noted this for hundreds, thousands of years about how this verb nagash seems to be associated with someone who is approaching or taking a step forward to go beyond themselves to reach out to somebody else. So if you have a disagreement between two parties, people have said, well, you can take care of it with with um, conditions and penalties but what then happens if you have the people that are looking for the loopholes all the time well then you're going to have to do what with the conditions and the and the penalties multiply them and enforce them and litigate them on and on and on it goes but that's where we have this principle called good faith in legal parlance is that you have these measures that happen as a sign that you are moving forward for the benefit of the relationship between the two people and we have some examples of where you see this nagash in the examples of relationship building with um, Avraham when he nagashed to the Lord related to um, Sodom Gomorrah the cities of the plain down there step forward it's like you know are you going to wipe away the righteous with the the people that are having some serious problems and that stench has gone up into heaven are you going to wipe away everyone because of that so stepping forward and you see that incredible um dialogue between (laughs) the friend of god and the creator of heaven and earth that's hey um can the creator of the of the earth do something that is not just? And thus you see this going back and forth to seeing, well, what was the just situation? And sadly, it gets down to 10. And even for 10, it still was too many, sadly. Then you see another one where the word is used uh, and... It is an approaching, but it is, it is a approaching that is meant to mislead someone to go in a different direction. Now, that's the whole uh, discussion that goes into Yaakov with his um, interactions with his father over the birthright. Birthright supposed to go in his direction anyway, but he nagashed his father with the guise of his brother. So 
It was a move forward to allay the concerns of his father, but it was with the um, hallmarks of his brother. Another example is with Yaakov after the whole <laughs> uh, um, hoodwinking his father and getting the birthright that was, you can see, from directed from heaven, supposed to get, go his direction anyway. Then he had to flee. <laughs> And after he's coming back with his family, he nagashed toward his brother. And when you read that passage of his return and, re- and meeting up with Esau, there are several instances where you see a nagash, where he approached his brother. He approached his brother with gifts. He approached his brother with his families. He approached his brother himself. Approaching, 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 until he finally showed up directly in front of him himself. But this was to do what? It was to mend the situation, this deep hurt, divide between the brothers that had, that had come up in the process. And then you see it again as it shows up in Yosef's life of both where Yosef's brothers nagashed toward him as he was playing this out <laughs> the situation with his brothers in you know, various ways you could say it he was trying to figure out what they were doing what their hearts were still like etc but they were approaching toward him and that's where you could say that the perhaps a realization came that yes they had changed from when they had uh, sold them off either tacitly or unknowingly or through various ways off into slavery away from the family that they were approaching and approachable you might say so then Yosef himself nagash toward his brothers and approached them to finally heal the situation and then you see that with the in Exodus 19 as the priests nagash towards the Lord to so that that that's relationship between the priesthood and the uh, creator of heaven and earth would be established. And then you have Moshe himself nagashing towards the cloud for that relationship. And interestingly, when there's the instructions in Exodus 21 about where a servant that had served in the family and at the end of his time, I decided, well, I want to stay with the family to be adopted into the family because economics in the ancient Near East were quite different than they are now. And a lot of what happens with uh, people on the outs, it's not as easy to get yourself established. And it was not easy if you were um, a widow or a single woman or um, if you were sent away divorced not easy so you also for the slave when you're basically at the end of your indentured time to then be getting yourself started again so this idea of adopting into the family was a way to continue on as a greater part of a whole and um, even though the word is not specifically mentioned in the encounter between uh, Raquel or Rachel and Leah, 
um, in Exodus or Genesis 30, talking about the whole mandrake situation and trading things back and forth, where um, we're coming up in the time of uh, Tisha B'Av, and that's one of the things that, that sages talk about is this interchange between Raquel and Leah and how the situation there in Genesis 30 is a view of reconciliation of where Raquel, in a sense, was reapproaching Leah over this whole situation of the husband that was originally supposed to be and what Yaakov was wanting in the beginning, but Leah came forward first by from her father and then first with the kids now being reconciled back to her sister with this approachment over the mandrakes because folks have puzzled for centuries over what those things were people say well that's some sort of a um a fertility aid or it's an aphrodisiac or something like that but um the sages have noted that some of the hebrew sins to look at it may be better translated as weeds like dandelions so there is some of the idea that the mandrakes is kind of like when uh, similar because you see in the passage is one of the kids comes and picks him and presents him to her mother. And one idea is, is that it's similar to a child picking some flowers and presenting it to the mother. Now, Raquel at this point in time, how many kids does she have? Only through her, her maid has none. So that experience of a child to her mother, or to the child's mother, Raquel has not had that experience yet. So that's why one of the pictures is, is that perhaps this was a situation is like, hey, give me the weeds. I want the weeds. And in exchange, the affection of Yaakov. Say, I will give that to you. So that is what's seen in the time leading up to Yom Kippur, the Tish B'Av, as a sign of reconciling deep hurts that have happened over a long period of time between the sisters. Deep, deep hurt that has um, come in between them. This, the, the battle over the babies that they had. So with this East Bank bargain that you have between the two tribes, you see that they talked between themselves and between Moshe is saying, we're going to do, we're going to just step forward and we're going to do this. And we'll be at the front of the fight and we won't leave anybody behind. And when Moshe presents it to the rest of Israel and he presents it like the contract, the, the conditions and the penalties. But the relationship between the tribes and between Moshe was like, okay, Rubain and Gad addressed Moshe's fear. His fear was that they were not going to go into the land, just like the ten spies convinced most of the people to not go into the land, the leadership to not go in. But Gad and Rubain addressed that and took care of that situation. 
you see some of these uh, examples in when um, Yeshua was telling the parable, he told the parable of uh, the, you know, when you have a person in court, make sure that you settle the things before you go in, because if you don't, what's going to happen? They're going to just start extracting stuff. It's just going to get uglier and uglier and uglier. So what? You do the good faith measures. You do the nagash things first. You approach the other side. We're going to take care of this and just deal with this and get it done because we don't want it to go anything further than that. Yes, uh, Alex, do you have a comment or a question? Um, Yahweh hating uh, Esau. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, where Esau did that I hated. occur? I mean, I've been reading up on some stuff. and, I, and I, Where did that occur? Always? Or did that develop? The, um, the one thing of the hating and loving, and especially the, the hating, is, you know, we, we think in, in English parlance, it's, it's in, the in the realm of you've got some sort of deep-seated anger. But hating in the, the way it's expressed in Hebrew is more like just not favoring. And that is where the potter and the clay come in. Esau was not favored. But as you see in the outgrowth of it, there, you could see the later result of it is why Esau was not favored. What did the people of Esau then become? Married outside, blended, uh, continual thorn in the side, fighting against Israel, even down in through the exiles and creating huge problems down, down through time. So with Yaakov, I loved and Esau, I hated or I did not favor. There was a reason for that choice that was made. There would be a direction that would go toward where um, the Lord was wanting to go. And then there would be a direction that would go away. And even with Yaakov and his descendants, and you see with the exiles, there, it took some, uh, took some turning of the screw from heaven's standpoint to really get things back on course again. Because that reason for Yaakov to be loved, to be favored, was forgotten. We read that in Jeremiah passage. That's why it had been forgotten because they had brought in all this stuff from all the nations around and completely lost the whole sense of what Israel was all about. It's like when you read Isaiah 45, it's like the Lord is saying and using language that's similar to Genesis chapter 1 of like, you know, I created Israel to not be void, to not go into nothing created Israel to do something. Well, when you come down to the exiles, Israel just, it just become like everybody else. Its whole reason for being, for being the place where the dwelling place of God would be among mankind and then take the presence of God into and the knowledge of God into the whole world, that was just like completely forgotten. Because why? They had not thought <laughs> as the... 
Apostle Paul puts it there in in uh, Romans chapter 1. They didn't think that the knowledge of God was something worthy to be retained. So, uh, similar to what you see in that proclamation in um, Romans chapter 1, where it says that, well, God gave them over to the various things of foolishness. For a time, Israel was given over to the realms of foolishness. It's like, okay, if you want to go in this particular direction, have at it. But uh, you will quickly see where the end goes. And prophets were sent to say, yeah, okay, the, the bridge is out. Turn around, hit the brakes. But in some cases, they just hit the accelerator and just kept, kept going. You know, right over the bridge being out. But Israel itself... This thing that God had created, as it said there in Isaiah 45, was so important that it could not just come to nothing. There had to be that remnant that would just continue going through and to reignite. And the Lord would reignite that little spark, the little remnant would then go on. Because the mission for the whole world was just too important. Too important. So that's one great lesson that we have in this particular passage. And as we close out there in Numbers 36, the conversation between the, uh, the daughters is very similar to the situation that we were talking about with the tribes. Now these daughters were saying, as, and you saw the, the first um, connection of this back in Numbers 27 when we first saw these daughters come in and the mishpat or the decision that was then made and just like we were talking about earlier about having a covenant and then saying okay there is some things that need to be um, added in there to make this thing go forward and that one thing added in there is the if there are no sons then the daughters will be just fine to pass on the inheritance but as this chapter here in 36 is clarifying, is that, well, having it passed through the daughters is just fine, but having the cohesion of the tribe itself is hugely important. That tribe must be kept together, and its holdings must be kept together. So thus, then, sure, the, the daughters inherit it, but it has to be ultimately kept into the bigger, wider family that they're in. So that's one of the interesting situations that um, then some, some commentators over the centuries have tied this back to another situation where you have the importance of what was happening to be a part of something, a part of the whole with the, um, it's called Pesach Shani, or the second Passover, that is talked about earlier on in Numbers chapter 9, where you have this situation where it's like, okay, people want to participate in the Passover because that is the memorial of what? The being released from slavery, being released from the house of bondage and going into freedom. That's a hugely important memorial. The only memorial that's like you get a do-over in it, but that particular situation is that well, what is the yearning intent for the person 
to participate in the Passover, but they could not actually go through with the first Passover. So then the second Passover is available a month later so that they could participate in that because being and celebrating a part of that Passover is a part of your whole collective story. Even though, just like each of us, we have our own Exodus experience of our own house of bondage, all of us have a collective being freed from the house of bondage. And we're all moving forward as people of God toward the land, toward the place of rest, toward the messianic era, toward the messianic kingdom. All of us are moving forward toward that even though each of us have our own separate paths that we're going on. We're all traveling along toward one particular goal. So thus, it's one of the the lessons that we can have uh, in if we tend to be trending toward more individualism to say, hey, in the the family of God, uh, just as Paul talked about with the, the parts of the body, All of us as individuals are a part of something bigger as a whole, and we all really need each other to be a part of the whole. But for those of people that just say, well, the whole is all that matters, and the parts are just, ah, forget it. We can just replace a hand, you know, we can replace a foot, replace an eye, an ear. No, we can't. Each part of it is hugely important. So, Thus, there's the, the both sides of the equation. If you don't you know, go too far off to the collectivism or too far off to the individualism, that we realize that they're a both a part of the same whole. And that's one of the lessons that we get with why tribe apportionment as a part of one whole nation is hugely important. And we see that kind of down in the modern era as to where we have with the United States originally was all a part of, yes, you are individual states, but you are part of a collective whole. And that your collective whole should not drive down and stamp over the individual states. But the individual states shouldn't stamp and tromp down each other, one over the other. And it's, it's so hugely important that one of the things that came with the Declaration of Independence is that there were 10 of the states that wanted their in very specific language. You could see in the original drafts of the Declaration of Independence that we do have, you can see that there were the specific mentions upon um, <laughs> the kings um, among the usurpations was the the enslaving of the people, bringing them over from Africa into the colonies. But there were two of the colonies that objected. So that was one of the things that came down with the way that the country was eventually put together was that for the sake of that whole, you would have to move forward with the poison pill that ends up being in the Constitution um, as the three-fifths clause of representation, poison pill being in that it 
kind of defanged the ability of the southern states to dominate over the, uh, the northern states and outvote them. But, as has been expressed by a number of economists, the, the doom of the chattel slavery economy was, it was just a ticking bomb. Because when you look at the economic output of the northern states, not even close to the southern states, and it just got worse over time. Started out lower in the, in the 1700s, and was even lower than that in the 1800s, even before the Civil War. So it was just, it was a matter of time. The economy was grinding to a halt. Yeah. Took, took 100 years, and even after, after the, the devastation of the Civil War, then still mired in a far lower status of the economy. So, it's just kind of a, a sad thing, but the, the whole of what was being brought forward in this particular country of freedom from tyranny in the world was said, yes, this is hugely important. And this was a, an important message that had to go out and be formed in the world that, yes, this is possible. Because, you know, what else did it go to over time? started to be lots of other independence movements among lots of other countries from the various empires of the world. And it's one of those things that we, as the United States, look at it and see, well, the original idea of where this country started from, yeah. do we still go with it anymore? just like with Israel, and just like with what we start forward with when you have the prophets bring forward the message of what Israel is, and then the Mashiach comes and explains it further, and then the apostles come and they explain it further. Do we want to stay with that? Or do we say, no, that time is past, and we're going to move on to something else? I mean, each of us really come come through with that from even one generation to the next? Do we want to stay with what came through our family, our family's legacy? Or do we want to move on to something else? Now, there could be very good reason to move on to some, something else. Could be the way, that, um, <laughs> the way that we came through from our parents is something that should not continue and go on to the next generation. But when we are kicking out the pillars, we should be careful what the pillars are actually supporting. So when we look at like the, the Torah, the Torah supports the prophets and the writings, and the Torah supports the Gospels and the apostolic writings. So when you go to kick out the foundations, what then is going to come crashing down in the process? And sadly, among our brothers and sisters in the wider body of Messiah, there is a lot of confusion and really chaos going on because you start losing this idea of who you are anymore. Israel, ancient Israel that we read about, has went through similar identity crises. Do you know who you are? So, Anne, I'm sorry, the, you had a comment or a question? Um, yeah, um, <clears throat> as Tammy said early in the 
in the message before the message started that you know she took a chance i mean in your love that you would say okay you know well we know we got this debt that you had over your college uh issues you know as a young person and it, she had i'm sure some turmoil well maybe he'll say oh it's too much too much to deal with <laughs> so goodbye <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know um so i mean it, that's a really thank you for sharing that tammy because that was really an important point you know to see as life is that way and and i know my sister she took on a her her longtime boyfriend and and married him and then later found out that he had a debt to irs and so it, it was a real you know kick in the you know uh, so it was hard for her to continue, but it she did. But um, you know that trust is was was definitely crashed. You know when somebody yeah. doesn't share those deeper things of need. You know before the relationship gets so deep that you yeah. make a vow to one another like that. You know right. And uh, so, sometimes we don't want to hear it. I, I seem to remember something. My my future husband had said to me before I married him, you know, and I said, oh, and I cried about it. And then he said, oh, no, 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 it wasn't true, da, 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 you know, and I was just kidding. <laughs> and I went with it, you know, so I'll get so I believed that he was kidding, but he was really telling me the truth then, but I wasn't willing to listen. Mm. But, um, you know, the deeper things need to come out before you marry someone, before yeah. you really commit yourself. You know, and you you think about the uh, the examples that we've talked about in previous times related to vows and why there is so much importance put upon you will surely fulfill or pay your vows. Because there is the corollary that comes in, if heaven makes promises to us, we should, when we make promises to heaven, we should surely fill, follow through with those because of heaven's commitment to us. Because when you think about <laughs> uh, going into a relationship with someone who had a lot of debt, I mean, think about what, what heaven is, deals with us. Deals with us. We have a whole load of debt that we come in to the kingdom of God with. But... We have the, the great promise, and you know, every year when we uh, remember Yom Kippur, one of the great blessings of that is, is the, the great remission of debt. So thus, when you see like in Romans chapter 8, it says, therefore what? There is no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua. Why? Because of what we go through and remember each year Yom Kippur is that great working out of the new covenant where the sins, the transgressions, and the iniquities are removed from heaven's memory of us. So, that is the great promise that we have in that. Any uh, last thoughts as we close out here? Yes, uh, Alex, and then Sam. Well, Fortunately for Tammy, you had a, a faith. We have kind of a backdrop as a Christian at the time, or Messianic, and uh, there's there's a lot of things that a modern 
person can fall back on and you know this is done i'm out of here what's there's they you know because you have that foundation you'll survive a lot better and uh there's so much whimsy without it mm. i mean what's a commitment right <laughs> <laughs> yeah and that's that's one of the challenging things when you come from either a family that is not big on commitments, not big on following through with commitments, then that leads to, as the, the parlance is, commitment issues where people are just really don't want to even promise or make long-term commitments. You see that related to uh, marriage in newer generations, more recent generations, where the percentage of marriage just goes down down and down and among those things you'll often hear people say as to why they don't is because you know look at how many blew up our my parents marriages blew up so i don't want to go into something like that with all the turmoil and i want to just have the ability to go in and go out and not avoid the hurt um that could be involved in the process so that's one of those things with the legacy from one generation to the other that's why it's important to have these promises, these commitments, and then follow through with them because then you are showing for the next generation, hey, there are things, there is trust that you can have from one person to the next. And then, well, how much more than is the creator of heaven and earth trustworthy? I mean, Sam, uh, you had a comment. It's uh, you know, talk of uh, of the pillar, you know, the the Old Testament. Uh, some of it is you know, when you read the Old Testament, it's uh, not uh, you know, very uplifting sometimes. Right. When you you know you read the Old Testament, like in what happened in uh, chapter thirty-one. <laughs> Yeah. And it's one of the arguments that the New Testament, you know, uh, churches are having is the New Testament God is different from the yes. Old Testament God. The Old Testament God is a very vengeful God, bloodthirsty God that always, no mercy, just kill everybody. And the New Testament God is very rosy, very compassionate. Right. And I think that's one of the, uh, you know, the things that has led many people, you know, moving away, you know, to kind of a new age church, you know, to believe in that, not going back to the reason why God sent those people has to be put out of the land for the reason of, you know, idolatry and, you know, not to corrupt the Israelites if we learn from them. And if we take the Old Testament out, you know, saying, okay, because we don't want to read all these things that, you know, uh, killing women, because it can be very, you know, in the time we are living in, we saw what is happening in, uh, in, in uh, Ukraine now, and we're feeling like, okay, that's, you know, evil things that is happening right now. But we look into this and say, you know, God did the same. Why, why we... What did the, the Midianite did that God sent, uh, you know, the Israelites to go wipe out? Even the little baby, even the woman, 
the innocent people. But God is the creator. He knows why things have to be done the way he wanted. And the, I think message like this needs to be, people need to understand that we are not God, as you mentioned earlier in the Jeremiah. Can what is being created say to one who created it, why did you create me? Or why did you make me this way? So is that that God have reason why he, he, you know, he allowed that to happen? And sometimes, you know, I, I'm saying this because I have a daughter who, you know, is growing up now and is exposing to a lot of, uh, you know, teachings out there. And sometimes I, I remember we had a conversation on, you know, numbers. And she was like, man, I cannot relate to this. Why is, you know, this killing? So, and I tried to explain to her, the reason for that is God have a reason because of the sin and iniquity of these people that live in that land. Mm. So it wasn't just God willingly wanted to wipe them out so that he can have a place for the Israelites. No, he's a God of creation. There's a whole, land, whole place he can put his people. But he, that is the specific place. And these people who are dwelling in there are evil. In God's sight, in our sight nowadays, they might not be evil. So, and I think, uh, you know, the, the new... The, the new generation of believers, even in messianic body, has to understand that sometimes it's a heartbeat for us to spill, I mean to swallow, but God has a reason. We have to believe the scripture as it is, even mm. though we might not be able to, you know, to understand why things are happening. Right. So I just want to, you know. Yeah. That. Well, that, that's one thing that we've, we've definitely touched on before, and the, one of the aspects that we um, see that's mentioned in the prophets where it talks about, you know, that he is the one that kills and he's the one that makes alive. You know, for us, the death is very finite. You know, there is that separation. And, you know, we trust that there is something else beyond that. But for us, death is a reality. It happens in our families all the time. But with the creator of heaven and earth, that is not an issue. There is death, there is life. We see that in the Gospels, we see that in the prophets where someone was dead, then the power of God comes, and then the person is alive again. And thus, what was seemingly a finite end was not an end. That's the one thing. And the other thing that um, sadly is being brought to big focus today is what can happen in a society we there's the the controversial term that's uh coming into more common use these days you call it social contagion where you have a um an ethos that because of influential people or just how often it's spread or how um or attractive the idea might be etc lots of different reasons for it but it metastasizes from one generation to the next one of the things that they have is related to um get a uh, gender confusion it has been an issue that was in the perhaps you know less than one percent of the population for decades as for when they've been measuring it going back to the early 1900s but then in the past couple of generations it 
it shot up to five percent. Then the next generation, ten percent. Now, current the current generation, Gen Z, or various ways they describe Gen Z, it's twenty percent, twenty percent, and that's far beyond what um, you materialists would say is an explanation of well. You've got just a certain percentage of the population that just um, has an initial struggle that they have beyond what is normal with a um, gender confusion. This is far beyond that. You've got the, the testimonies that are going out of social media of whole classrooms turning over. It's like that's far beyond even the statistical possibilities of things. That is a hinting strongly at what you call social contagion. Then you see what happens in countries um, where you have uh, child labor, child slavery of it, where you have the children that are turned into not just monsters, but you know bloodthirsty killers. I mean, you see it in Southeast Asia where they've got these gangs that turn kids into just killing machines. They give them automatic weapons, and they just go and wipe out everybody in the village. They have no compunction, not even a second thought of what they're doing whatsoever. And it's, and it's a problem in a number of areas of the world. So you see what can easily happen where you have a force that just goes in and grabs the children when they're the most impressionable and just turns them over into something unbelievable and we may not understand it but maybe the most merciful thing for the heaven to do is to just hit the reset button on the younger generation and use the one power that uh heaven has is to just say okay we're going to reboot the generation later on in the day of the lord where hopefully the um the lies of the adversary are taken away so that is the, the one promise that is out there of it. Because the situation on one side and the other is just ugly of where you have whole generations of kids that are just turned over into things that are just unbelievable. But the other side of the equation is, is that, well, then perhaps then you can have a reboot of the generations and the only way that the that the lord can do is without then the lies that have come about that created the situation so yes uh, alex yeah, i would just like to add to what uh, sam's saying you know i i had one of the funnest childhood with my jewish friends love them and that's why i'm comfortable with you know i i reach out to the messianics during covid um they don't complain about the Old Testament being pretty strict. I mean, yeah, but you live with it. That's life, right? I think it's almost your modern Christian is the one who, who has that kind of irrational fear of that God and this God. So uh, I don't think Jewish people have a problem with the Torah. I think it's Christians who have very little... Yeah education and exposure although, to it. Although there, there is um, in the United States a, a strain of it where um, you say there are denominations of a, of a sort that have challenges with um, just the passages that Sam was talking about. So thus they end up getting 
how do you say, rounding off the edges of, of some of the aspects of the Torah. So happens in the Christian world, it's happening in the Jewish world. Yes, there are some of the things that you end up being like what we read back in Jeremiah. We're just you know, very uncomfortable about the way that things are moving forward. And we just say, we don't want to be molded that way. We want to be molded a different way. So we'll just remake it in our own image. So, yes, uh, Larry. Implicit, I think it's implicit within the scriptures that he knew when he created humans and gave them free will yeah. that it was going to be a big problem. Yeah. And that he was going to, look what he had to give up. Yes. But he did it anyway because he wanted us to have this experience and he wanted us to take it forward to everybody. That's what he, you know, what he did, why he picked the, the Jewish people. He wanted them, and then they didn't perform. So, I mean, you know, it's just, he went into it with his eyes open, I think. Yes. And realized it was going to be a big, big problem. Well, it's it's one of the things that when everything comes out through the final, the end, through the day of the Lord, um, what is it that is the, <laughs> you see it mentioned again and again in Revelation, you know, to the one who stands, to the one who endures to the end. Then comes the crown. Is it just, just gritting your teeth and getting through it? Or as you see, like the um, apostle Yaakov and James chapter 1 talks about it. It's through the enduring, through the standing, through it, and all these things that you face, you mature and you become a more mature person. So through this, we become people that realize, yes, we want to follow the ways of the creator of heaven and earth because we know that those ways are better. We're not coerced into it. We're not forced into it. We realize and go, yes, this is the way that it needs to go. That works. And sadly, you know, we, we know from our own experience through history, and it's talked about in the prophets and Revelation, that just sadly there is going to be those that just say, we don't want to go this way. And thus, um, it is sadly just going to be the the way that that is dealt with is talked about with the the second death is just to say all right um uh, one of the the things i've had lots of conversations with fellow brothers and sisters in the body of messiah about this idea of the eternal hell and that you would have the eternal um punishment somewhere else and that is a, a challenging discussion going back and forth about this because it's like, why, you know, why would you then persist in having people that would be continuing on with the sense that there is, uh, they are being forced to exist in a place where they don't want to exist? So it is a, it is a conversation in there because. That is uh, something where you go in and you talk through on the Torah and the prophets. It is like, there is the way. There is the derech, the way of the Lord. There's just not like some other way. You're not going on and on south of heaven for all eternity. There is just 
the way. So that is the, the way that moves forward towards life, and the other way is just not a way that's going to continue. So, uh, yes, Carrie, please. Well, I think, um, not that I'm in complete disagreement with any of this, but I, for me, what's become very important to me over the last few years, I think with Hashem dealing with me, is that I think a really important question for us to ask ourselves is, are we contributing to the situation? Yes. Because we're humans, yes. and it's possible for us to develop doctrines that yes. actually create the environment that brings the, these problems. Yes. Um, things with gender dysphoria, um, there are some situations where it's coming out because children are feeling extremely oppressed by teachings like gender roles and things like that. Um, and we know that when Messiah was here, that he was calling the leadership out on having doctrines that were too oppressive to the people as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important. I mean, yeah, it's important to know, okay, well, God has a standard and we need to, we need to stick with that. And then at the same time, if we focus on ourselves and make sure that we are doing that, then we wouldn't as easily contribute to these situations. And I think Bingo. we need to hold ourselves yes. accountable. Yes. Which I, I'm really glad you put that's a, that's, a dynamite thing to uh, for us to be thinking about as we start looking up towards Yom Kippur. Because one of the things with the traditional Yom Kippur service is with just rattling on this long list of the sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And you might think, well, I've done nothing of those. Well, are you sure? All part of that exercise is to go through the list and to just say, maybe I didn't realize I was doing that. You know, the... The other tradition that comes down through the liturgical denominations is, you know, that's, um, that's what we've sinned by what we've done and what we've left undone to recognize, well, have I left things undone that I should be doing? Like the Apostle Yaakov says, if you know the good you're supposed to be doing and you don't do it, then that is sin. So these time periods when we're, we're looking at this... Um, memorial and the remembrance of the great coverings that we've received through our Mashiach of our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, to just think about that, yeah, okay, what have we contributed to the situation? And the things that we think are just blowing up all around us, well, <laughs> how many of those have we set and started and stoked in the process? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a dynamite reminder. So thank you. Any uh, last thoughts as we close out here? Yes, uh, please go ahead, Sam. You know, in the last week, we, you know, when you were uh, teaching, you mentioned about uh, Balaam yes. being a personification of uh, uh, Antichrist. Mm, you know? mm. So, and in this uh, Torah portion now, we see that Balaam was killed. Yes. So for me, it's an encouragement that, you know, Antichrist is not going to be there forever. Right. So as Balaam was being put out, so is uh, one day those, uh, you know, who is uh, those wolves in a uh, in sheep uh, cloth, they will be put out. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you see a, a, a picture of that in the um, book of Revelation when it talks about, you know, the, the, the false prophet and the beast. And both of those being tossed in. So there's going to be an end 
to those sorts of things that are just leading the nations away. So, yeah, that's that's it's a hopeful thing, but then it's also <laughs> quite the quite the scary thing because, as the Mashiach said, you know that um, that perhaps it could be possible that even the very elect could be led astray. So always be thinking, hey. How much of this am I getting uh, causing or getting sucked into myself? Yeah. Yes, Larry. You know, that's interesting too because this lake of fire, it says, <clears throat> people think, well, that's, their torment goes on forever. No, the smoke of their torment goes on. In other words, remembrance of the fact that this is what happens when you're completely disobedient and you, it's gonna, you're going to cease to exist. Right. Because then, then Hades death and the hell are thrown into that fire yes. and then it's all disappears no more death which is what the next chapter 22 of revelation talks about that there will be no more death yeah. no more pain no more sickness because the former things so there's not people Hades is hanging around away. in there being tormented forever yeah consciously being tormented yeah and then there's the the other aphorism where it talks about that the smoke of sodom goes up forever and ever well we still remember it and that smoke still goes up forever and ever because you're not going to forget about that. Just like what we have memorialized in here with what we talked about today with Korach and Bilam and, and those particular um, apostasies that happened. That smoke, so to speak, continues to go up because we should never, never forget um, what led to those situations and the damage that those situations caused. Huge damage. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at Hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.